Welcome to another edition of Hebrews. I think we're going to be focusing on chapter 6 today, although we didn't finish chapter 5, so I will pick up where we left off in chapter 5 and work my way through 6 as far as I can get, and I may not get very far, but that's because this chapter is... I'm not going to call it the meat of Hebrews. That's not what it is. But it is the section, it's the chapter of Hebrews that generates the most controversy. I'll just say that much. It's a, it's, it's the one people go to and debate and scholars go back and forth. And, and there's, there's a lot to be said and a lot that I won't be able to say. But chapter 6 is kind of like the chapter that most people, when you're reading through... Hebrews, when you come to chapter 6, especially a couple verses, you shudder. You, you shudder. If you're, if you're paying attention, you go, what did he just say? <laughs> and uh, it, it really gets, grabs our attention. So, I'll begin, let's begin with prayer. Lord, we're grateful to be able to gather here once again under your word and examine this wonderful book of Hebrews. And we just ask that you would, you would uh, explain it to us, that the words that I say would be your words, Lord, and that your word would come through and would grab our attention, convict us of our need for you, and... Increase our desire to seek you and pursue you even more and trust you even more and to grow in our faith. Lord, we just pray that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things from your word. In your name, your son's name, amen. Amen. Okay. So where we left off last week was Hebrews 5, 10. The author of Hebrews, as we saw last week, starting in the latter part of chapter 4 and moving through chapter 5, begins to make his great case for Jesus as the great high priest. And he begins to explain why this you should consider Jesus as a high priest, even though that was not probably what the original hearers were thinking of. That was a new concept to them. They had probably never thought of Jesus as a high priest before because no other author in scripture had ever presented Jesus as a high priest. This is the only author who does. He's, this is like a new concept he's bringing in. So Paul never, and all of the letters attributed to Paul, he never once calls Jesus a high priest. Jesus never called himself a high priest. If you read the Gospels, nobody in Acts ever came out and said Jesus is a high priest. In fact, John won't call him a high priest either. And John writes the last books of the Bible, the last ones that were actually penned. The author of Hebrews goes where no one else has gone before. He dares us to consider Jesus the high priest of our confession. That's chapter 3, verse 1. And that, as I said last week, is the command of the book. That's the most important foundational command of the book. Consider Jesus... 
actually says the apostle and high priest of our confession in chapter 3, verse 1. He's already given us an idea of how Jesus can be an apostle in the first four chapters of Hebrews, but now he's transitioning to Jesus as the great high priest. And that will occupy him basically through chapter 5 and chapter 7 and 8, 9, and 10. But right in the middle of this discussion, he appears to take quite a hard turn. He shifts unexpectedly. And you can see the unexpected transition, the startling transition, if you go from verse 10 to verse 11. I'll read actually a verse, I'll read a little bit more for context of where we were. I'll start in verse 8, chapter 5. Although he was a son, Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then you read 11. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Say, what? He just went from the high priest to essentially a rebuke of the people listening to him. He's shifting gears as abruptly as you can. I've got a lot to say about this high priest thing, but you're not listening to me. You become dull of hearing. It's like the speaker is up there. He's, he's going off in my high priest discussion and he sees everybody glazed over and dozing <laughs> off and looking at their iPhones. And it's like, listen up! I've got a lot to say, but you guys are dull of hearing! It's like, whoa, that, if that doesn't get your attention, what? You're, calling, you're accusing me? I'm dull of hearing? That's what he does. Now that word dull, by the way, can be translated lazy, it can be translated um, sluggish is, a, is another way. It's like, you're like falling asleep on me. And, he, and probably, if this was a spoken sermon at the time, before it was transcribed, that's what, what it was, that people were falling asleep. But there's more to it than that. You're actually sluggish, and he's going to explain to them. He's going to spend the next few verses explaining why... They're sluggish. And he's going to try to fix that. Now, just to show you where I'm going with this, this word dull slash sluggish is going to show up again. And it's going to show up, if you look in chapter 6, at the end of the section that I'm going to get to today, it kind of ends at verse 12. If you look in... Um, Verse 12, you see the word sluggish there? So at the very end of what he's going to go take them through, he's going to say, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. So he's got this sluggish word, dull word, at the front and at the end of this section, of this exhortation, of this rude interruption. So he's going to say, you're sluggish, and I'm going to tell you how to stop being sluggish. That's, that's where, he, where he's taking us, okay? I'm going to get your attention. You are dull of hearing. But by, by the time we're done with this, 
my goal is to spur you on to no longer be that. So that's, that's the bracket of this section we're talking about, this, the two dull, sluggish words there. 5, 10, 6, 12. So he accuses them of being dull of hearing. And then um, in 12 and 13 and 14, he goes on to say, you're not just dull of hearing, you're immature. And he does it in a, this, is, this would be another like shocking word. Here you are listening to him. He's calling you dull of hearing. And then he starts to basically call you a kid, a child, an immature child of the faith. Which is this kind of accusatory there. Sir, why are you insulting us like this? And he, he's explaining. He explains why he's doing that. Says, verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. So that, that implies something about these folks. By this time, you should be teachers. Tells us that they've been a Christian. They've been in church. They've been doing this gathering of believers stuff for some time. They're not, they, they're not just freshly baptized within the last month. Perhaps years have transpired. And he's saying, you guys should be teachers by now, and you're not. You, you still need to be taught. And taught the basic, what's it say there? Basic oracles of God? Or words to that effect? Principles. Principles, the basic principles. He's going to say oracles later. Um, you, you need to relearn the basics. I mean, you don't even know the basics very well. To where I... Do we have to teach you the basics? Somebody needs to teach you the basics. Turns out he's not going to teach them the basics. He's going to, he's going to teach them about Jesus as a great high priest, which is not a basics at all. But he's, he's accusing them. You guys are immature. You're just not getting it. And there's, there's an association here of the dull of hearing. He noticed he called them dull or sluggish of hearing. Remember what was so important earlier in the book when you get to chapters, in the early chapters, Jesus is presented as the Word of God in, in essence. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he told them to, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Right, right out of the gate, in chapter 2, verse 1, he said, we must pay much closer much closer attention to what we have heard. It was a call back then to listen up. we got to pay attention to what's been heard. And here he is accusing them of, you're not paying attention to what's been heard. You, you should have heard this and know it. And here you are, you're still, he's basically saying, look, you guys scare me because I've, I've been telling you, you need to pay close attention to what you've heard. And I'm saying you haven't. You have not. You're immature. So, he goes on. Someone needs to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. You need what babies need. You're not ready for the real meat yet. Because you're immature. For everyone, and then, then the statement in 13 and 14 is curious because it's a, when he said you need milk and not solid food, 
you think, oh, okay, milk is the basic oracles of God, the basic stuff. Solid food is probably the deeper stuff. It's deeper teaching. You guys need, as he's telling them, you need deeper teaching? Or is he getting at something else? Look at verses 13 and 14. I think he's getting at something else, and it's surprising. Notice he says, For everyone who lives on milk, in 13, is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Basically, said, you guys are children. But he's also saying something else. He's not just saying they don't know the basic oracles. He's saying they're unskilled in it. It's an action word. You're unskilled in this word. And then in verse 14, he, he contrasts the solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant <coughs> practice to distinguish good from evil. Did you hear that? The babes, the children are unskilled, and the mature have trained senses by constant practice. So the reason they're unskilled isn't because they don't necessarily know stuff. It's because they're not doing stuff. They're not... They're hearers, but not doers of the word. They've been listening, 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 sluggishly, and they're not putting it into practice. The mature put it into practice. That's what verse 14 says, right? Because of practice, have had their powers of discernment trained to distinguish good from evil. The immature are unskilled in that. They haven't been practicing it. They've just been sitting back and listening and falling off asleep and, oh, I got that. But they're not doing anything about it. So the distinction of the mature from the immature is whether you're actually putting it into practice or not. Not whether you know it or not. So just feeding solid food of doctrine isn't necessarily going to mature these folks. They need to put it into practice. And that begins with listening up. First, you've got to hear it, and then you've got to do it. So the author is accusing them of being immature, not so much because of what they know or don't know, but because of what they have not been doing. They should be teaching others by now, and they're just sitting back doing nothing. They're immature. So that's an interesting note to make of this rebuke. Who are the immature, those who don't do it? Well, the mature actually do it. And what do, what do the mature do? They, they're able to discern good and evil. They're able to put into practice what they're learning, and they're able to make good, wise decisions about, this is, a good, this is good, this is evil, I'm going to do the good, I'm not going to do the evil. And the immature are kind of like not doing that. They're not discerning. That's the implication. They're, they're not discerning. They're just doing whatever... They're not even thinking whether, is this a good thing to do? Is this going to honor God? Or is this an evil thing? In their minds, they're just sitting in church listening, and that's good enough. Whether you do anything about it has nothing to do with anything. It's just, I got the good teaching. I know it. I know it. If you don't actually put it into practice, 
You haven't grown up yet. You're still just a babe. And then he's going to give a command to these sluggishers in chapter 6, verse 1. I remember last week I said there were no commands between chapters 4 and chapters 10. I was wrong. There is one. Here it is. The command is, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. There's a command there. So I was wrong. There is a command to these sluggish hearers. But I wasn't entirely wrong. Because that command is a very strange command. It's, it's strange because it's a passive command. Meaning it's something you can't do. It's something that's done to you. So he's basically saying, grow up. But you can't. Because a better way of translating this to get the passive idea would be, I think I wrote it in here, the passiveness of it, the verb of the passiveness, could be rendered, let us be carried along to maturity. Let us be carried along to maturity. Put yourself in a position where you can be carried into a position of maturity by someone else. You can't do it to yourself. You can't mature. Someone else has to mature you. And who is that someone else? Jesus. Look down at verse 3. It's... Jesus, yes, it's God. What does verse 3 say? And this we shall do if God permits. There it is. That's also reinforcing the fact, you can't do what I just told you. It will only happen if God permits it to happen. It's God's doing. And Paul says that elsewhere. I've got 1 Corinthians 3, the famous I watered, Apollos watered, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. Only God can cause growth. It's the same idea. We can only water. We can only put the seed out there. We can only preach to you. God is the one who causes the growth. And he's saying, grow up. Actually, he's saying, put yourself in a position to be carried into that growth. That's, that's the command. The command is, align yourself with God so he will mature you. But you really can't do it. So... That's why I mean it's a passive command. It's a weird kind of command. It's a command of, well, it's a command I can't do anything about other than listen up and he'll get to it. How, how, we, how you put yourself in a position to be mature, he'll get to that eventually. But he's got some more rebuking to do, some more wrangling to do, some more get your attention to do. So... He's commanding them to grow up, but only God can cause them to grow up in verse 3. And in verse 2, he lists the elementary doctrines of Christ. And these are surprising ones because, well, not, they're not surprising. What's surprising is the fact that he said, let us leave them. <laughs> That's the surprising part. Like, what does that mean? Let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ? And he lists them right there in verse 2, or actually the end of verse 1 and 2. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith towards God, of instruction about washings, of laying on of hands, 
and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Six of them there. Basic doctrines, and he's like, I'm not going to talk about these. We're going to move on from that. What, what he means by let us leave, he doesn't mean abandon those doctrines. He's not saying, you don't need to repent from dead works. That's not what he's saying. You, you don't need to have faith in God. That's not what he's saying. You don't need to be baptized, which is the instructions about washings is probably referring to. He's not saying that. Although it sounds like he's saying that the way it's written. Let's leave this. Leave that behind. We don't need to be baptized anymore. Move on from that stuff. It's, it's not that idea. It's like we're going to move on from talking about that because you actually already know the details of that. And you kind of almost need to be retaught that. That's what he said earlier in a couple verses before because you're so immature. I'm going to move on from that. We're going to move on from that because I want you to get in a position where you can mature because those doctrines in and of themselves aren't necessarily going to enable you to mature. Because if you think about them, just think about what these things are. I think I've got it organized here on the notes. Um, It's kind of at the bottom of page two. They're foundational beliefs that belong to the early church. Repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Now that's the basic entry requirements into the kingdom of God. Remember what Jesus, the very first thing Jesus says, I listed there in Mark 1.15, the very first words out of his mouth in Mark, after he's baptized by John the Baptist, repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the first words out of Christ's mouth. So that's certainly something you don't leave. But that's how you get in. You repent from dead work. You believe what you hear and you repent. So it's... It's a reference to the entry amount of faith it takes to become a believer is to repent from your dead works and believe. And I think he's referring to statements like what Jesus says in Mark 1.15. Actually, John the Baptist said the same thing before him. Then he lists four other things. Well, the next two are also like instructions for new believers. When you're first added to the church, what are you asked to do? Be baptized. And just to show you that, if you look at the very first day, the very first church was created by God, the Holy Spirit, was Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came down and Peter got up and spoke. And after he spoke this riveting sermon, it says, let's see, I've got here Acts. 238. 38. So, actually, right before it, 237. Now, when they heard, the people gathered on the day of Pentecost heard this, they were cut to the heart. That sounds like the sword of the Spirit at work from chapter 4, doesn't it? The sword cut them, exposed their need for the great high priest, as I said last week, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you. So there, there's, okay, repent, be baptized. So he's, he's telling them, be baptized, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. So right out of the gate, an entry into the kingdom to be added to the church is you repent, have faith in God, faith in Christ, 
and you be baptized. But there's also this laying on of hands thing, <clears throat> which I think is related to the receiving of the Holy Spirit that Peter said right there. And I'll show you, Peter does something similar a few chapters later with the Samaritans in chapter 8, verse 17. I'll read that one. And this is um, where Philip went to Samaria, preached the word, they responded, and they said, well, they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet, so bring Peter and John up. So they go up, and it says, I'll read in 8, 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on him, laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So there's, looking back at the narrative of Acts, this instruction about washings and laying on of hands is like an entry requirement to get for new believers entering the church as they're baptized and they're prayed to receive the Holy Spirit and the gifts, whatever gifts. <clears throat> the, receiving the gift is actually, that's something that's, that Paul talks about to Timothy when he says, and I'm sure we'll hear about this in the evangelism seminar next week. Remember the gift you received when the presbyters laid their hands upon you, do the work of an evangelist that he received that gift. So laying on of hands probably has something to do with that. The washings probably has something to do with baptism. There's a lot of debate out there. You can read other commentators who have other ideas, just so you know. What they are is not really significant to what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. He's not trying to give us a teaching lesson on these things, because he's already said, move on from that. I'm not going to waste any time talking about that stuff. And And... A lot of people like to debate, oh, well, what is that? What is that? It could be this. It could be this. <coughs> and it's fun to debate that, but it doesn't necessarily advance the point of what the author is trying to drive at. He's just saying, you all know that stuff. When you first became a believer, you all learned that stuff. And then he actually lists two more, eternal judgment, resurrection of the dead. That's another thing the basic Christian understands is I'm going to live, I'm going to be raised, I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of God, there's some end times thing coming down, and there's a promise of eternal life. When you first join the church, you learn all that basic stuff. He says, I'm going to move on from that, because that's not good enough to get you to mature. I think what he's implying by this is, if that's all you know and that's all you care about, is the basics that got you in, and you don't care about advancing... You're still a babe, and you guys apparently look like you're babes because that seems to be where you're at. You haven't advanced past that basic stuff because you're sluggish, you're not listening, you're not pressing on. And my goal as the author of Hebrews is to get you out of your sluggishness and advancing towards faith in Christ, the great high priest. I want to move you from this sluggish, I'm good enough, I'm just, I'm resting on my laurels. I got in. I got in 15, 20 years ago when I believed and got baptized and they laid hands on me. And I know that there's eternal judgment coming. And I, I got it. That's not going to help you. And one thing that was brought to my attention by uh, 
by Guthrie, whose commentary I rely on the most, that's really interesting, the context of these particular uh, Jewish believers, they're Hebrews, is they were likely, most likely, in and around Rome, and they were most likely, this was written most likely during the reign of Nero, A.D. 65, after Paul's been executed, but there's these, these congregation, they're, they're there, and they're about to, and they don't know it yet, but they're about to go through a very intense persecution. Because Nero, Nero is famous for targeting the Christians after Rome burned and blaming it on them and using it as an excuse to wipe them out. So they're about to go through a serious persecution. But they haven't quite gotten to that point yet because later this author is going to say, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding blood. It says that in chapter 10 to them, the same guys. Meaning, you are starting to experience it, but you haven't been killed for it yet. Like some of us have, like Paul and Peter have. But you're faithful, and I want you to continue to persevere. Now, keep in mind, for the original hearers, they're about to undergo serious persecution. Like, they're going to be sent, they're going to be killed by the emperor. And and follow on emperors. If all they have to rely on is, I once believed in Christ and repented from dead works and got baptized and got laid hands on, and I know about, I know all that. <clears throat> and and they're presented with recant or die. If that's all you have to go on, what are the chances of you going, oh, I choose death. I'll die. Or are you going to go, oh, I think I'll stop being a Christian because I don't want to die. And the author, I think, is aware of this. Persecution's coming to you guys. Suffering is coming. And those basic oracles that whatever got you in years ago isn't going to get you through it. You need to be actively listening to Jesus now, actively considering him as a great high priest, actively laying hold of that confession, as we talked about last week in chapter 4, verse 14, actively drawing near to the throne of grace, as we talked about in chapter 4, verse 16. This is an active, active work. You need to have your senses trained by constant practice to discern good and evil so that you're ready for that great Suffering is coming. And I thought, that's amazing. That, that, that makes Hebrews... If that's truly what the situation was for these guys, that makes... I understand what he's trying to do here. He's worried about them being able to endure and persevere through the suffering that's coming. And he wants them to mature. Get out from that state. Start moving in the maturity state. But only God can cause it. And I'm going to help you get you in a position where you can hear from God's word and you're going to have faith in Christ and you will persevere. So all that to say, that's just two verses, one through three. (laughs) Then he goes to verses four through six. And in many ways it gets worse. All right? So he's already said, you guys are sluggish. You're immature. Let's grow up, but I know you can't do it. Because only God will permit that. 
And then he, then he goes to this. And these verses are the ones that make a shudder. Called the scary warning. If you read this and you're not scared, or you're not like shuddering, um, you might want to check your spiritual pulse. Because these, these words are meant to really like, yeah, what? Um, so I actually said something about comparing to those earlier warnings in Hebrews. I'll get back to those. I want to get to just the con, what he's actually saying. I'm going to move down to, I guess it's um, four. I'm just going to list them. My page four, it's verses four through six, just to read them. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened and who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come if they then fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And you go, whoa, what did he just say there? He just said it's impossible for people who fall away to come back. Especially, and, and he lists these people who fall away, fell away. Apparently they, they tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Shared in the Holy Spirit. They were enlightened. And now they're enemies of God, basically. Now they're crucifying for Christ again, which I think is a, a way of saying now they're literally wanting Christ to be dead because they know they've heard the truth and they don't want it. They're railing against it. And they're holding him up to open contempt because now they're ridiculing and they, they had an understanding of what Christ came to do and yet now they've totally rejected it and they're railing against it. And it's like, what's scary about it is that it's impossible for those folks to repent. Really? <laughs> Um, and that's where scholars debate and go back and forth as to what does he mean here. This is where the great discussion of whether you can lose your salvation or not is centered on these verses and how you interpret them. And all that, and I'm not going to go there because I, <laughs> it's the author of Hebrews doesn't go there. I'm going to stick with what he's trying to accomplish. And... <clears throat> Just so you know, um, down at the bottom of page four, I said, does this text mean a true believer can lose his salvation? Some say yes, some say no. Other texts have a better answer to this question. If you want to go look at Ephesians or John, there's some texts there where Jesus and Paul basically say that those whom God has in mind before the foundation of the world are his and he doesn't let them go. So they would claim... No, you can't. But the author here is saying that they look like they were saved, and now they're not, and they can't repent. It's like, what? what is he saying? I actually have written a whole three or four page discussion on this that I've got a handout back there. Or you can sign up for it, and we'll email it to you if you'd rather have a software. And I actually wrote it 15 years ago. <laughs> I just looked at it again yesterday and said, oh, this, I still agree with this. <laughs> I'll make it available. 
Actually, Rich asked me to do it 15 years ago. And when he says that Jim has a commentary on Hebrews, that's what he means. I have a commentary on this section of Hebrews. And that's what that is. It's my little take on, on how to look at that in a way that the perseverance of, of the saints is not undermined and that the intent of this is for that not to happen. But that's separate. I don't want to spend a bunch of time on that because the author of Hebrews doesn't either. He just sort of uses this as a... I'm getting your attention, I'm scaring you, and I'm going to get you to a point where I can encourage you and I can get you to a position of maturity. That's where he's going. and He's not, he's not explaining this stuff. He's, he's just putting it out there. And um, a couple comments about the warnings of Hebrews. I, I'll go back up to page three of my notes and just explain. There's a background to this. This is not new in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews has been warning them from the beginning, and I list the other warnings. Sometimes when we read the other warnings, we don't really think of them as warnings because we don't think they apply to us. Like the first warning in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, I've already mentioned, is the one where it says, we must pay much closer attention to the things that we have heard, lest we drift. So the first warning is saying, you got to listen up or you're going to drift. You can actually see... These warnings build upon the current warning and rebuke. Remember, he's saying, you're not listening. You're sluggish. So he's basically saying, I think you're drifting, is what he's saying, if you put the two together. And then also that first warning has a stern um, statement of, those who neglect this great salvation shall not escape. Like, if you neglect this, the outcome is not good. You're not going to escape it. And then the warning continues in chapters 3 and 4. And this is the long warning. It's actually 3, 7 through 4, 13, which is the section just prior to the great high priest text I started at last week. That's one big long warning as well, where he's using Psalm 95, using, which is talking about the Israelites whose bodies fell in the wilderness because they disobeyed and didn't believe the promised land was for them and hardened their hearts. So there's a list of things there. Do not harden your hearts. If you go astray, you're not going to enter my rest. These are all warning statements. Back in chapter 3, in chapter 4. Then there's a couple commands, actually. Let's fear. Let's be afraid. Lest any one of us fall and fail to enter that rest. There's actually a command to be afraid to fear and avoid this missing out on the promised rest. And verse 5 is another command. Let us strive to enter that rest. Work hard to enter that rest that no one may fall. Because if you don't, like the Old Testament Israelites whose bodies fell in the wilderness, you're going to, something like that's going to happen to you too. And then the final verse, 413, which follows the sword of the Spirit, or the sword of the word is the sword. No creature is hidden from his sight, all are indeed naked and exposed before the eyes of him with whom we give an account. That's a scary, like, really? That, that, that whole text, three and four, and even the first part of two, is, is warnings. But this one's scarier. Why? Because it hits closer to home. The first one's, I think, at least I do, I tend to dismiss them, or I'm tempted to dismiss them as, what, me drift? Ha, 
I'm good. I can't possibly drift. I'm good. When probably I'm floating on a raft out in the ocean by myself with sharks all around me, and I'm just oblivious to it. So, you know, ah, that's, that's not for me. It is. But we're tempted to, like, that. we can distance ourselves from that one. We can also distance ourselves from chapters 3 and 4's warning because that was the Old Testament Israelites. We're better than them. We're, we, that won't happen to us. And then the beauty of the chapter 6 warning is the author who's been warning, 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 warning says, okay, now I'm going to bring it home to you guys. You, you can't dismiss this one. Because every one of you knows that this is true. Every one of you has seen this happen. You've seen people who were a part of your family of believers depart from the faith. You've all seen it. If you've been around long enough, we've all seen it. We, if you've been a part of this church for more than 10, 15 years, you can probably start to look at others. Some people that I used to, to we did fellowship with, who seemed to have encountered all of these enlightenment and tasting heavenly gifts and sharing in the Holy Spirit and goodness of the Word of God and powers of the age to come. And now they're, they're off the rails and in some cases actually vocal enemies of our church posting stuff online against us and stuff. And yet they were actively part of us 10, 15, 20 years ago. This happens. He's basically saying, notice, he's basically saying this happens. And he's, he's stating it in the third person like, you know it happens. You've seen it happen, guys. This can happen. Just because you've experienced the goodness of God doesn't make it good for you now. Just because you were good 20 years ago doesn't mean you're good with God now. Just because you believed in Christ and were baptized 20 years ago doesn't mean you're good now. If you're basing it on past experience or your knowledge of the Word of God, or your past confessions, looking back, oh, I prayed the prayer when I was five years old. Well, now you're 65. Where are you? Have you grown? Are you still one of those needing milk people? Shame on you. That's, that's not good. So the point of the warning <laughs> is to bring home a healthy fear of the Lord. And I... And, <clears throat> There's a lot of commands in Scripture that, well, like I said, back in chapter 4, verse 1, there's actually a command, let us fear. Let us fear. It's a command. Fear of God is, is good because it, it's, it keeps us on the, on the right path when we're afraid of the consequences of going off. If, if you don't stick with it, you might become like one of those guys. You might become like the Israelites in the wilderness or one of these guys who once was a part of our church and is no longer and is actually an enemy. That could happen to you. So fear. Be a, there's a, an element of fear and trembling he's, he's generating in them. And it's good to have that fear and trembling. Paul actually says so. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling in Philippians 4.12. I think I wrote that down. There's a place for it. And that's what he's got with the, the he's, that's what he's done with these folks. He's basically said, I'm afraid you're just like those folks. You might just be like those folks in the wilderness whose bodies are going to fall soon. And I don't want you to be. 
And before, I'll, there's a couple other verses I'll make quick mention of. After the scary warning, he goes to an agricultural metaphor, which I think is helpful in, in understanding what he's going, what's going on here. And I listed that. Um, I think I'm on page five of the notes is where I got this. The comparison to the crop. So those who re- there's a difference between those who receive God's blessing and do something with it and those who do receive it and don't. If you notice, the crops receive the rain that often falls upon it. I like the word often. It's like there's a lot of rain falling. It keeps falling. But in those for whom there's a blessing, it produces a useful crop. But those who are cursed, it produces thorns and thistles. Those who are producing the useful crop do so for the sake of the one who cultivated it, who happens to be the analogy is God himself is cultivating, putting rain on them and they're growing, they're producing crop. And those who don't are worthless and they're close to being cursed and ultimately they get burned, gathered and burned. And he's saying, that's that's the idea here. The The folks who are I'm talking about in four through six are the ones who are close to being burned. And if you receive the rain and you do the right thing with it, you produce a good crop. So he's kind of saying what you've heard elsewhere, you shall know them by their fruit. You've heard that stated by Jesus. You've heard that stated by Paul. He's basically saying the same thing. The ones who are maturing are producing good fruit, and the ones who are not are producing thorns and thistles, and it's obvious. It becomes obvious, and ultimately, they'll be burned. But then he gets to verse 9, and there's another abrupt transition. And this is a good one. Where he had said early on, listen up, you're sluggish, you're immature. Now, he changes his tune. And this is important that you read this after you read the warning and the rebuke. Verse 11. Or no, nine. Though we speak in this way, he just like softens his tone immediately. Yet in your case, beloved, notice he called him beloved. That's a change of tone. They were dull of hearing kids, and now they're beloved ones. <laughs> I love you. He's saying, I love you. I, I, though I'm speaking this way, I did that for a reason. I wanted to get your attention, guys. That's what he's saying. I got your attention, finally. You were sleeping off, dozing off on me when I said Melchizedek, and I'm trying to get you back. (laughs) You're beloved ones. And we feel sure of better things. And that phrase, we feel sure of better things, is like a, I'm confident that you are much, it's, it's a super, I'm, very, very, very confident of better things for you. I do not think you're among the ones who are going to be burned and who are going to rail against Christ and have gone off the rails that you personally know about. I am convinced of better things. We are. We're convinced of better things that belong to salvation. And then he gives a couple reasons why that is in verses 10 and 11. 10 primarily. The first reason is For God, 
is not so unjust. He's not unjust at all. God is not unjust. He's appealing to the character of God. Okay? Remember, they're only going to mature if God permits it. And I know God is what he's saying. God isn't unjust to allow this to happen to you, beloved ones. That's one reason, God's character. And the second reason is because there's actually fruit. I see fruit. I see fruit. You guys are producing good fruit. You're not the thorns and thistles dudes. Because, and he says it by, he's not going to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. You're, you've got a care for your fellow saints and you've worked persistently over time since that beginning confession years ago. There's evidence you've got fruit. I see the fruit. So you're actually, like I just said, there's the two fruits. You know them by their fruit. I see fruit that says you're not amongst those who are headed for the burn, for the burn burning. And that's what he says there. And then he's going he's gonna to start to encourage them even more because that's just the basic start. And he's, he kind of says another command. He says it... In, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And this, this verse here is the key to explaining what he's going to do from this point on. We want you to have earnestness. If you're earnest, you won't be sluggish. Earnestness is the antidote to sluggishness. And he says that in the next verse. So that you may not be sluggish. This dullness thing that you're stuck in, you won't be dull if you show earnest advancement to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, the full assurance of hope until the end. So he's saying, there's a hope you need to be fully assured of to get in a position of maturity. That full assurance until the end is said one more time later in Hebrews, that phrase. And I wrote it in the notes. If you remember it, you can read it. Where else he says full assurance of hope? And it's on page six, the top. Be earnest to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Full assurance of hope defines faith in Hebrews 11.1. 1. What does Hebrews 11.1 1 say? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the assurance of hope, the first definition of faith. Mm -hmm. So he's really saying faith here. It's like a code word for faith that he'll explain later. We want you to earnestly have faith. Faith. And from this point on in the book, the author Hebrews is going to do everything in his rhetorical and literary power to get these sluggish folks to become earnest about that pursuit of Christ through faith. 
every chapter from now on is going to have that goal in mind. And he's essentially just a big, big flyover picture here. I believe this section of Hebrews is the turning point. This is the last little section of verse 6 here. And what's interesting is he's highlighted two motivations. And I listed them there. A motivation by fear. And he did the motivation by fear basically prior to this turning point. And from now on, he's going to motivate by faith. All right? Faith is going to be the primary motivation. And, and I'm making the case for why it's a motivation by fear prior to. It's because, well, number one, there's a bunch of warnings. He's done warning after warning after warning after warning. He's called them immature. He said, you're not growing. You're not listening. And his, his primary motivation up until this point has been kick. Get up and move. This might happen. Be scared. He's motivating by fear. And now he's going to shift gears and say, there's a better way, guys. Fear is necessary. And fear works with immature people. They're kids. That's why we have to spank little kids. Because you can sit there and say, I love you. Don't you love me? Don't you not want to do that because you love me? And they just do it anyway. And you have to spank, spank, spank. Don't do that. That's what God does with immature believers. He motivates them by fear. But ultimately, he wants to get us to a state where we no longer need to be spanked so much. There are still warnings to come, but there are in few between. I listed them there. He wants us to look at Jesus, be absolutely enamored by him, and want to please him, and just, in all our effort, just please him, and, and not be so bothered by the occasional discipline spanks. Although we need both. Mature believers are motivated more by faith. Immature believers are motivated primarily by fear. You want to mature into the faith way of pursuing Jesus. And that's what he's doing right here. That's where this change in Hebrews happens. From now on, he's going to give us a reason. Chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of reasons for why we can have a full assurance of hope in this great high priest and run with race the endurance set before us and not be so bothered by the fear part. And I have to bring it to an end there. So let me, before I, well, actually, I says there's a few minutes here. <laughs> I, I, I'll just briefly lead you where we're going. The next, the, the latter part of chapter 6. He's now going to show us how to begin to appropriate faith and uses Abraham as an example, which is what he does in chapter 11 also. So he gives you a foretaste of chapter 11's faith, faith, but then he says, I've got to get back to the high priest somehow because I, I kind of got distracted by your sluggishness. And notice at the end of chapter 6 what he says. <laughs> Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he gets right back to where he left them. And in chapter 7, he resumes and says, okay, let's talk about Melchizedek finally. And so he's going to transition, going to show them an example of what faith is and why we can have faith in God. 
And then let's get back to the high priest. Boom, boom, boom. And that's where we're going. And we'll, we'll pick it up. We'll pick up those verses next week. Um, questions? Anybody? I'll top of your head. Questions? Uh-huh. So um, I think last week I mentioned to you in the beginning of chapter 2, I always thought of it as kind of the first command. But I'm wondering, when you said that the, uh, the verb go on was passive, is it also passive in chapter 2 when it says... Um, uh, pay pay closer, closer attention. attention. Yeah, no, it's we must is active. What verse is that? Chapter verse two, one. verse one. Two. And that's. Uh, so that's why it always struck me that that was the kind of main focus of Hebrews, which makes sense how you're saying it now. It's not, but it's part of it. It's part of it. Like I said, I think the main command is three one. Is where I think the first, because mm-hmm. actually two one is technically not an imperative and grammatically it's not an imperative, and it's it's a warning, and okay. it it's uh, it's like we got to pay a close attention, but pay close attention to what chapter three verse one pay close attention to Jesus the great high priest and apostle of our confession, so they work together. So it's I think they're saying the same thing. In fact, if I when I listed the different where does it say pay close attention to Jesus. Two one is one of the places. Okay. Three three one is twelve two is twelve one twelve two. That's the other place. So I think it's a four, a four it's, what's coming. It's like it's the whole. It's, I think it's the underlying theme of the whole book. It's like you guys got to pay close attention. Focus on him as an apostle and a high priest, so you can run the race up before you and persevere to the end. That's that's the point of Hebrews. Get past all that persecution that you're going to experience. And, and do it by faith in Christ, not just by trying to avoid the, the bad things. <laughs> Go for the good. Don't just try to avoid the bad. All right? All right, let me close it out in prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. I pray that your people are encouraged even by a scary warning when they see that you have provided a great high priest who's a forerunner, who's gone into your presence, and we have a hope that's anchored with him in the holy place, and we hold fast to that confession, and we draw near to that throne. Lord God, help your people be encouraged to be earnest about this. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. Amen.